0: chicken. <laughs> in your bulletin are some uh, important announcements. You can see Operation Christmas Child. You can see packages starting to, boxes starting to appear. Bring your boxes and put them up here. Don't have a lot of time left, so pay attention. And remember, whatever you gave last year, just double it this year. We'll be fine. It's, <laughs> we also, uh, Ryan Leeds and I, this is in there starting a study on the book of Revelation tomorrow night. And uh, most of you probably got emails. If you didn't, Either it means you didn't read it, it, went to your spam folder, or you're not in our email. If you want to get on our email, let's just go to our website, and down at the bottom, you can fill out the form. There is one mistake in here. Uh, it says complete the form at this link. That link will actually take you to an empty video conference room. You'll be all by yourself, okay, <laughs> if you go there. So the form is actually on the website under educational courses. What this link does takes you to the video conference that we will be using if you want to join via video conference tomorrow night. We will be uh, doing it that way as well. And we have friends from Texas and other places that join in in the Bible study. So you're all invited if you want. Uh, we were going to try to do it over at, across the way here at the NX, but we already have enough people. I'm not sure it's going to work. So come, we'll either be there or here. You'll see us. There'll be people around. Okay, so... As we move into Exodus, it's going to get more and more personal for you, believe it or not, okay? It's going to get more and more personal, and today's one of those days where it is going to, going to get in a little bit. You, you might be surprised, I heard from a lot of people afterwards, that um, they have not tied the plagues to the gods of Egypt. It's interesting. Do you, uh, any idea how many gods and demons are mentioned in the Bible? I love scholars. I just love them. They do my work for me. This is a dictionary of all the deities and demons listed in the Bible. Right here. So, there are people that study this. This is their life. And uh, every god that you come across, every demon mentioned, you can find out the history of which nation followed it and how they did it. And that's actually important for what we're going to look at today because today we are going to look at Uh, what God did during the plagues. How many of you have even heard the story of the ten plagues? Let me see your hands. That's about everybody. Okay, how many of you knew that that those were the gods of Egypt? A couple of you. All right, what God is going to do now is he's going to dismantle a whole nation. Okay, he's going to take it apart. And he's going to do that by destroying their gods. The fastest way to take a nation apart is to destroy its gods. And that's what he's going to do, and we're going to see that. And it becomes very important for us. But first of all, look at where we've come on this journey. When we started in Exodus, remember what I said two years ago. We looked at Leviticus, and I said Leviticus was a paradigm; it was a blueprint for holiness, and it lays it's the foundation to the theology of the New Testament. Everything that they did. Well, Exodus is talking about freedom, and it comes in the form of letting uh, letting the people out of slavery. But that becomes the paradigm for coming to Christ in the New Testament. And the necessary part is going to be dismantling the gods, destroying them and taking them out of the picture. Remember where we are. The Israelites have only been out of slavery for two months. They're sitting at the sand at the base of Mount Sinai. They've already heard the Ten Commandments. That's all they've heard so far except for uh, Genesis. So Moses is telling them the story. They don't know the story. They've been slaves for over 400 years. So Moses is telling them the story of all that happened. They had seen the power of the Lord, but they didn't know what that meant. Uh, and so Moses is explaining. So he starts with Genesis, and now we're into Exodus. Okay? And so we'll come back to that, because that sets the stage for what he does with these gods in just a minute. So the first thing we did in chapter 1 and 2 is we looked at the concept of the need for freedom. One of the problems that we have is that we don't know what it's like not to have a sin nature. We don't. So for those of you that have come to Christ, you know what freedom is. Uh, Rob, thanks for your prayer. That was a great prayer on freedom. And uh, God is, uh, Christ died to set us free. But we don't know what true freedom is. We've only tasted it. We don't know what it's like to not live in a fallen world, a very broken world. Okay? And uh, so one of these days, each of us are going to wake up in glory, and we're going to go, huh? Oh, No insecurities. Huh. This is what it means to really be loved. Oh, my gosh. And it's going to be so life-giving. And we've only tasted it, just a glimpse of it. And so we don't know what it's like not to be free. And these slaves are sitting there. They don't know what it's like not to be free. And so they're hearing their story, which is our story. They're hearing it for the first time. So I've said several times, just try to picture if you've never heard this story, and you're hearing it for the first time. That's what they went through. Okay? So everybody needs freedom, and it's captured in the first couple of chapters in terms of enslavement. That sets the stage for Paul in Romans 6 to say, You have been enslaved to sin. We are. Okay? We don't know what it's like not to be enslaved until we come to Christ, and then we're given freedom, but we still don't know what it's like not to have a sin in nature. That will, that will go away in glory. And so he uses this story as the paradigm in the New Testament for coming to Christ and being set free and the ultimate picture and revelation of ultimate freedom in the, on the new earth, the new heavens. We'll get to experience it and see it. Then in chapter 3 and 4, we talked about an unlikely deliverer. And this is a story of Moses. But Moses is not the deliverer. God is. And that's a surprise. He took Moses, and he, uh, he said, you're going to lead the people out. And Moses is like, uh, me? Uh, no. And God said, yes. Moses says, no. God says, yes. No, yes, no, yes, no, yes. And it keeps going on, and we're going to see another one of those today before God doesn't really give him a choice. All right? He doesn't give him a choice. It's great. But not only does God not give him a choice, we're going to see in just a minute He's going to set him up in competition with Pharaoh. That makes it even worse. So there is an unlikely deliverer, but it's not Moses; it's God. And eight times in that section, He says, "I." Well, He says, "I am." That's my name. And then He begins to say what He's going to do. So then last week we looked in chapters five and six, and uh, we talked about the God of freedom. And and God said to Moses because Moses starts objecting again. Here are the things I'm going to do. I have not forgotten my people. I've heard their groaning. I see what's going on. And I'm going to bring them out to land, uh, promised land, flowing with milk and honey. Then all of a sudden we get these ten plagues. So what are the plagues about and why are they important? Well, we're going to have to wrestle with that. But first, Moses is still objecting at the end of chapter 6, verse 27 I'm sorry, 28. Now, when the Lord spoke to Moses in Egypt, he said to him, I am Yahweh. He keeps telling him his name. That's the basis for everything that happens. He's helping Moses understand there's only one true God, and it's him, okay? I am the Lord. Whenever you see the Lord capitalized in your Bibles, as it is up there, that's the personal name of God. If it's not capitalized, that's the term Adonai, which is a title, okay? But this is his personal name, and now he's beginning to use it. And he's reminding Moses, I am Yahweh. Tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, everything I tell you. But Moses said to the Lord, since I speak with faltering lips, why would Pharaoh even dare to listen to me? Okay, this is another excuse. He doesn't want to do this. <laughs> so the Lord stuns him. He said to Moses, see, I have made you like God to Pharaoh. You see, Pharaoh was a god. And he's saying, I don't even know this God, Yahweh. Who is he? No, I'm not going to do that. So God says, I've made you like me, like God. All of a sudden we have now head-to-head competition. Life just got very hard because gods don't like other gods impeding on their uh, their area. And so this just makes it even worse. And I can only imagine Moses going, Really? <laughs> So I have made you like God to Pharaoh and your brother Aaron will be your prophet and you're to say everything I command you to say. Okay, that's how the story begins. So why the plagues? Why? Well, in the same chapter, chapter 7, verse 4, says Pharaoh will not listen to you. So then I will lay my hand on Egypt and with mighty acts of judgment, this is important in just a minute, I will bring out my divisions, my people, the Israelites, and the Egyptians will know that I am Yahweh when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring the Israelites out of Egypt. Then they will know. Well, So you see, God wants the Egyptians to know, he wants the Israelites to know, and he wants Pharaoh to know. So we automatically learn a lesson in life. Up until now... God has only shown his power. He's introducing himself to them while they're sitting there hearing this story. They're hearing the backstory of what happened. So he's introducing himself and he's explaining to the Israelites who are sitting there, here's what happened. And he's showing his power. And that's the way God works. That's the way God works. Every one of you, when you come to Christ, uh, if you were to stop and turn and look backward, you will see evidence of God already in your life already. Oh, so God doesn't start out with blind faith. No, he starts out with power and demonstration. That's why Paul can say in Romans that uh, you can look right here and that's enough to, uh, to get your interest that somebody bigger than you is here and then all you have to do is beginning, begin to seek God the true God and you'll find him. The Old Testament give, gives it in the form of a picture. If you search for me, I will be found by you. He just plants himself right in the road and you can't get around him. So when you look back, you'll see that he's already been at work in your life long before you demonstrated faith. So the Israelites are all sitting there hearing this, and they're learning about this God. They don't know much about him, but he's already demonstrated his power, and that's what he's illustrating here. He wants everyone to know. So now we're going to look at the plagues. I'm not going to, there's a, there are like four chapters. I'm not going to read everything, but I'm going to read a little bit out of each one, each of the plagues, and show you what God was doing with this one plague. So the first one is the plague of blood. Exodus 7, verse 17. This is what, again, there's his name. This is what Yahweh says, the Lord says. By this you will know, this is um, Aaron speaking, okay, on behalf of Moses. So this is what he's saying to Pharaoh. By this you will know that I am the Lord. With the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water of the Nile, and it will be changed into blood. Okay, remember when we were looking at Lamentations a couple of years ago? The view of the world at this time among all the ancient nations is that water, or blood, I'm sorry, blood was bad, it was evil. That's how demons were let out into the world, okay? And so until, until uh, God says in, Le, um, in Leviticus, sorry, until God says in Leviticus that the life is in the blood, we would have never known how significant the shed blood of Christ was. So world history shifted with that, but the early stage begins right here. He turned the Nile into blood. Well, the Nile was one of their favorite goddesses because the Nile was the source of life. So all the way down through in this period of time, on about 10 miles on either side of the Nile was all the civilization. If you didn't have the Nile, you wouldn't have life. And so that was a goddess that they worshipped. Remember when we were in chapter 3, we looked at the birth of Moses and he's, he's hidden in this ark and the, the daughter of Pharaoh comes down to bathe in the Nile. Remember I said she wasn't bathing. She's a a princess. She has a palace. She was going down to worship the goddess Nile. And what a surprise. She finds a little Hebrew baby, and that's Moses. And so the Nile is one of the goddesses that symbolized life. And God is making a strong statement by turning it into blood. He just killed the Nile and all the life in it. And he said, I think I'm in charge of life. Okay? But but Pharaoh's a god. He goes, yeah, I don't buy it. So we come to the next one, the plague of frogs, chapter 8, verse 3. The Nile, this is again, he's talking to Pharaoh. The Nile will teem with frogs. They will come up into your palace and your bedroom and onto your bed, into the houses of your officials and on your people, and into your ovens and kneading troughs, frogs, frogs, everywhere. Okay? And so this is interesting because the Egyptians they worshipped reptiles and amphibians. So he chooses one to make his point. Why on earth would you, we're going to ask this about everyone, why would you worship reptiles and amphibians? You see, the reptiles and amphibians lived in two different worlds at the same time. They're comfortable in water, comfortable in land. And so the Egyptians thought that they gave us the doorway into the next life. And so God, by destroying them, He takes power and control over them and says, no, I'm actually the one that takes care of the next life. I'm the one that gives eternal life. Okay? So then we move from there to the plague of gnats and flies. Exodus chapter 8, verse 16. So the Lord said to Moses, tell Aaron, stretch out your staff and strike the dust of the ground and throughout the land of Egypt, the dust will become gnats. And they're everywhere. They're everywhere. And um, even the magicians said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. But Pharaoh's a god. He won't listen. "Ah, That's not that bad. The gnats. So he sends the second one, flies. If you do not let my people go, I will send swarms of flies on you and your officials. On your people into your houses, the houses of the Egyptians will be full of flies. Even the ground will be covered with them. Gnats and flies everywhere. Okay? Now, the Egyptians worshipped insects. When you read the Psalms and you start reading language that God is even the God over the sun and the moon and the trees and the animals... What you're actually reading is God is saying, I am God over all these other gods that are not real. We read it as over nature because that's where we orient ourselves, but they wouldn't have heard it that way. Okay, so in Psalm 50, he says, even the insects in the field are mine. Okay, he's the God over all the gods that the ancient world believed in. And so they they worshiped insects because... They turned death into life. The scarab beetles, you've seen that in movies. You know, they put them in in with the mummies because the scarab beetles, what they would do is they would take manure, dung, uh, like a dung beetle, and put their eggs in it and roll it around until the eggs were ready to hatch. Flies, you know what flies are like on rotten meat, okay? They turned death into life. And so that's what they thought of insects. And what God is saying is, no, he has the key to life. It's not these insects. So he destroyed, he just filled the land with them. It's almost like a joke. You want gods? I'll give you gods. They're everywhere. You know, maybe we don't like our gods so much. And what he's saying is, no, I'm actually the god of life. I decide that. So then we get to the plague of livestock and boils. And uh, these two go together. Chapter 9, verses 2. If you refuse to let them go and continued to hold them back, because Pharaoh keeps hardening his heart, just like God said he would. The hand of the Lord will bring a terrible plague on your livestock in the field, on your horses, your donkeys, your camels, your cattle, sheep, goats. But the Lord will make a distinction between the livestock of Israel and that of Egypt, so that no animal belonging to the Israelites will die. We see this phrase repeated, and this becomes important in just a minute. And so he just is distraught, he's putting boils on all the animals okay well plague here the the second one goes along with the boils in verse 9 it will become fine dust he just told Aaron take handfuls of soot from a furnace and have Moses toss it into the air in the presence of Pharaoh it will become fine dust over the whole land of Egypt the festering boils will break out on people and animals throughout the land so why is he attacking the livestock and the animals well The animals were very important gods. They worshipped the goat. They worshipped the ram. The bull represented sexual prowess. It was the most powerful of the animal gods, was the bull. Okay? And what God is doing is say, they have no power at all. Look what I just did to them. Can you imagine if he, if you could talk to the animals, (laughs) the bull, the bull saying, what on earth did you do to make God do this to us? (laughs) You know, I'm not a god, but that's what they thought. And so God takes power over all the insects, the amphibians, the reptiles, the animals, and he's demolishing these gods one at a time. But he's building in intensity every step of the way. So what he's saying now to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians that there is no power with the goat, the ram, the bull, the cows, that there's only power with God. He controls everything. So then you have the plague of hail and locusts, and they go together. Chapter 9, verse 18 At this time tomorrow, I will send the worst hailstorm that has ever fallen on Egypt from the day it was founded till now. And that destroys a whole bunch of the plants, but not all of it, okay? Because then right after that, in chapter 10, he says, If you refuse to let my people go, I will bring locusts into your country tomorrow. They'll cover the face of the ground. I love it. You want gods? You get gods. Here they are, millions of them, (laughs) They will cover the face of the ground so that it cannot be seen. They will devour what little you have left after the hail, including every tree that is growing in your fields. So God totally demolished the vegetation. The vegetation. Now, why is that important? Well, vegetation was worshipped by the Egyptians. They actually named that god. They have names for all of them. This is one that you might have heard. Osiris. It's the god of vegetation. You see, plants died and came back to life. They died and came back to life. Okay? They died and sprouted up again. So they obviously had to worship them because of the gods. Okay, what you got here, you you look at it, it's it's not part of our world, so we don't see this very clearly. Everything is a god. This is no different than Hinduism. I've been all over the Hindu world many times. (laughs) Excuse me. And this is no different. Everything is a god. So if it's got power, we must worship it. And so they're worshiping it. They're worshiping the vegetation because it tells us how to turn death into life, if you will. And so God's statement is, no, he gives life. He gives life. You know, it's fascinating. I mentioned the bull. The bull was their most powerful, the animal gods. They mummified the bulls. You know, we have, through archaeology, we found over 2,000 mummified bulls, but very few pharaohs who have been mummified. That's how important that God was. And the vegetation was the same. Now, in our world, because we're so science-oriented, it's hard for us to imagine. But how would you know? If God never spoke, how would you know? So the Israelites are sitting here hearing this story going, wow, that's what really happened. All they know is he destroyed all these gods, but they didn't understand why. And so now in Exodus, he's beginning to explain it. So then God is getting bigger and bigger, more powerful and more powerful with Pharaoh. Pharaoh still hardens his heart, says, Not going to let it happen. So then God goes after the king of the gods in Exodus 10, Uh, Exodus 10, verse 22. Moses stretched out his hand toward the sky. Total darkness covered all of Egypt for three days. No one could see anyone else or move about for three days. Yet all the Israelites had light in the places where they lived. You see, the most powerful god was the sun god Ra or Re, depending on your Egyptian or Hebrew. Okay, sun god Ra. That was the that was the giver of all things. Here's what they believe: God, uh, the sun god Ra, raised at sunrise, and the world was in order. Everything had a purpose It was was ordered. Then at nighttime, it went into the nether world. And everything turned to chaos. It rose again. Everything goes back in order. Went to the netherworld, chaos. Order, chaos. Order, chaos. Creation occurred every 24 hours for the Egyptian pantheon. Every 24 hours. Okay, now pause. I'm going to step on a few toes here, forgive me. When you go back to Genesis 1 and 2, we have such an argument, a wasted argument on whether it's a literal six days or not. We're trying to make Genesis 1 and 2 fit science. It has nothing to do with science. Okay? It has everything to do with the Israelites who do not understand the world. No, there's no sun God who rises every 24 hours. What God is doing in Genesis is he said, I am God. I decided to make this for you, okay? And here is what happened. I created order by these things, okay? But this has become, honestly, one of the idols in the conservative church, One of my friends went to work, a professor at a conservative church, right in the middle of his first semester. He said what I just said, and they fired him on the spot. It's become such an idol. Genesis 1 and 2 is battling this one God, Ra, and telling him the truth about what really happened at creation. God said, I decided to make this world in order, in order for you. We should be the leader of environmentalism it should be our core one of our core theologies when I first came here 10 years ago I said that up front and the elders came to me and said several people asked if I was one of those liberal theologians if that's what liberal is then I am one okay it should be the very heart and soul of our theology because God made this specifically for our pleasure and to teach us about him that's why Paul says every human can look out there and see evidence of God. It's for us. If you if you have ever been to a country, a developing nation that doesn't have a strong Christian influence, come with me and see it. They have no respect, even though they worship the creation, they have no respect for it. India, I have a picture across the street from my where I stay with my friend. From here to those doors, and the house is just an outline, the pollution is so bad. Sewage running down the street. They have no regard for it, okay? Delhi, India, I've, I landed there at the airport. I'm still on the plane waiting to get off. The plane next to me, I could just see the outline. I took a picture of it. 18 million fires twice a day to cook food. It's terrible. The deforestation and all that, destruction of creation, they have no respect. They worship it, but they don't have any respect for it. And here, he is nailing right down to the... He's going right after the king of all the gods, the one God that provides the source of life for everything, the sun god, Ra. And what he's saying is, you know what? I am the ultimate giver of life, and you're about to find that out the hard way because you've gone too far, Pharaoh. You've gone too far. So the last plague... Is in chapter 11, verse 4. Moses said, this is what Yahweh says. About midnight, I will go throughout Egypt. Every firstborn son in Egypt will die. It's God. I decide who lives and I decide who dies. I'm in control of life and death. This is my decision. Every firstborn son in Egypt will die from the firstborn son of Pharaoh, who sits on the throne, to the firstborn son of the female slave who is at her handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle as well. And there's going to be wailing all throughout Israel. And you see, the plague on the firstborn was struck at the very heart of Pharaoh's godship because the firstborn was exalted as the one who carried life into the next generation. That's why, all throughout the Bible, you see the firstborn had a much bigger blessing than everybody else. That's how they thought. Okay? And so he struck right at the heart of Pharaoh. God's statement is that he is actually the giver of life and death. Now, this is the one plague that Israel is not exempt from. They have to do the same thing as the Egyptians, they had to kill an animal. If you read the text carefully, they had to bring a little baby lamb, one-year-old lamb, into their house, their home, with their children and care for it and love it and wait three days and kill it. And feed it and love it and kill it three days later. So you can imagine, those of you that have had children, you take a little lamb into your home for three days, you start to form attachment. He's teaching them about sacrifice, which is beginning to set the stage for what happens many years later with Jesus, okay? They have to kill it, take that blood, put it on the doorpost, and then that gets commemorated in the form of Passover when the angel of death passed over Israel. Not because they're better. We've said that all along, but because they were faithful. There's a big difference. You may remember back in this first and second week we talked about what we learn about God as a deliverer, not Moses, is that it doesn't really matter what you do for, Lord, that, to, for the Lord. What matters is your faithfulness in allowing the Lord to do something through you. God is always a deliverer. That's why Paul can say there's no one righteous, not even one. And he's quoting that out of Psalms, but it also says it in Isaiah. No one's righteous. It doesn't matter what you do for the Lord. We have a lot of celebrity pastors doing great things for the Lord, and behind the, sit, behind the doors they're doing all kinds of evil things. It doesn't matter. What matters is is how faithful you are in allowing the Lord to do things through you. That's what matters. And so the, the Israelites demonstrate faith. I remember, they're hearing this. This is why we did this. Huh. This is why we put blood on the doorposts. This is why we have a new festival every year, a new celebration, Passover, because God passed over us in the land of Goshen. So Passover in the New Testament Develops into communion where we say the body and blood of Christ. So God has passed over our sins because of the body and blood of Christ. That's where they came from. This is the story right here. Okay? They've been exempted from this, all plagues except this one, because everyone is subject to God whether they like it or not. Everyone is subject to his decision involving life and death. Everyone, even the unbelievers, those who don't care. What we learn is Passover does not celebrate the exodus. You know what it celebrates? It celebrates deliverance from death. That's what it celebrates. So in Paul, I always quote First Corinthians 11 when I do communion on the night that he was betrayed. Chapter before that, what he says is Christ is our Passover lamb. You see what we get to this at Easter When the the high priest was in the temple sacrificing the Passover lamb on behalf of the nation at 3 p.m., Jesus was hanging on the cross outside the city, dying as the true Passover lamb. It's one of the most incredible ironies in the history of the world. That's what Easter celebrates, the slain lamb, Revelation 5. Okay? And it starts right here. So, So, the question I want to leave you with uh, if you have served the Lord for any time at all, you realize that um, there's tension in this world, isn't there? Every one of us has gods. We've talked about that. Every one of us, uh, I have my own gods. We had an elder retreat last weekend and I asked them, what do you think my idol is? You know my idol? Information. I'm not bragging, I have five or degrees. I love information. It allows me to do this and hide from you. It allows me to try to impress you so you don't look at who I really am. See, you guys know me. You guys know I'm on a podcast. I'm just an avatar to all those people, but not to you. That's my idol, and I always have to wrestle with it. And so what is your idol? If God were to come today and deliver plagues to destroy your idols, what would it look like? Because the story of the Christian journey is this story right here of the Israelites. We're dumbfounded, we're innocent when we come to him, but we have a whole lot of sin and corruption. And as we begin to walk in faith, one of those idols one at a time goes away. In nineteen eighty nine, Nancy and I decided to become missionaries. I walked away from a very good paying job. I think I was making eighty six, eighty nine thousand a year. That was good money. Really good money. And became a missionary making eighteen thousand with no benefits and I had to raise my own salary. I started learning about true faith. (laughs) Okay? That idol was gone. But other idols began to appear. There's one of them right here. Okay? I like knowing. And I've had to work hard over the years to make sure that it becomes a gift to you, not a weapon. I don't want to weaponize this. I want to use it to draw you to the cross. Every one of you has idols. So if God were to send plagues today, what would it look like? I mean, is money your idol? God were to send a plague, what would that look like? How about prestige, success, conquest? Is cars, motorcycles, mountain bikes. Ooh, how about skiing? Just like in the first service, everybody kind of chuckled. That one hits a little closer to home. How about nature? I love hiking. I love biking. I have a Jeep. Sorry, Jeep Club. <laughs> how about off-roading? Okay, what's your idol? What gets in the way that God has to destroy because he didn't ask them, the Israelites, to make the covenant until he had destroyed all the gods that they were raised with? All right? Now, God is gracious to us. He does it a little slower than he does with them. But he still wants to get rid of the idols. What are the idols that you have? What are they? We're watching our nation, I believe, slowly come apart because we are assuming more and more gods and idols out there everywhere we look. You deserve it. You earned it. We have on one end the whole whole sexual orientation question all the way over to power, prestige, money, wealth, We're watching it happen in front of our eyes. And that's what the Israelites sitting there in the sand saw. They saw the nation that had taken care of dismantled. God really left them with no option because the gods were destroyed. Now they're sitting in the desert. Now they have no option but to begin to trust him. You see, the greatest gift God can give you is to destroy your God because that makes you turn back to him. So what would a plague look like in your life? With whatever your idol is. Father, thank you for this incredible story and for helping us get a glimpse of why you do what you do in our worlds. Why you in our world, the way you move about to, to replace the idols that we have with you, the one true God who brings joy and happiness. And Father, uh, I do pray for our nation, Lord, our president, our, his cabinet, the Congress. Pray for our governors, Lord, our, our local mayors, our town council members, some of whom are sitting right here who I love. I pray that you would continue to draw them to you and give them wisdom, Lord. I pray that you would give them wisdom to, to stop our hearts from turning away from you. Help them, and if they don't know you, then introduce yourself to them. We have a Bible full of stories of how you do that. Introduce yourself to them. Give them wisdom to guide us as a nation in a way that honors you. We're very grateful. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.